Hi, welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Jake Thomas. If you commute to a job, especially if you commute to a job across the border in Oregon, you've probably noticed that traffic has gotten a lot worse. And if you've been reading the news lately, you've probably heard about what Oregon wants to do about all this congestion. Currently, Oregon's state government is moving forward with a proposal to enact value pricing, aka tolls, somewhere along Interstate 5 and Interstate 205 between the state line and where the two highways intersect in Tualatin. Proponents of the idea, which now includes the Portland City Council, say it will relieve congestion and raise funds for infrastructure. So how does tolling work exactly, and how has it been implemented elsewhere in Washington State? To answer these questions, Colombian reporters Damien Pizzanti, Katie Sword, and myself turned to Mark Hellenbeck, the director of the Washington State Transportation Center. Later in the podcast, we'll be also be talking with Colombian sports editor Micah Rice about an upcoming winter sports preview. But first, we have a conversation with Colombian reporter Patty Hastings about her upcoming series on the five-year anniversary of same-sex marriage in Washington State. In December of 2012, Washington State legalized same-sex marriage, becoming one of a handful of states to approve such unions through a popular vote. Washington's vote occurred before the Supreme Court's landmark 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage across the country. So how's all that going five years later? Columbian reporter Patty Hastings decided to look into that. She spent time talking with same-sex couples, looking at statistics, coming through old county records, and she's wrapping it all into a three-day series that begins on Sunday. So welcome to the, the podcast, Patty. Thanks for being Thanks. here. Thanks for having me. Patty, uh, today's Wednesday. Uh, the, the podcast runs um, on Thursday, but, but today is a, kind of a significant day for the history of same-sex marriage in Washington State. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Today... Five years ago today, people could start getting, start filling out applications to get marriage licenses. And so then they can marry as soon as three days later, so December 9th. And our story is starting to run December 10th. Yeah, so, so today is the day. Yep, yeah. today is the day. <laughs> so what, did, was that intentional? Did we do that on purpose or did that just all kind of happen serendipitously? Yes, we did that on purpose. On purpose. <laughs> we did this okay. on, pur on purpose to kind of align with the exact, you know, five years later. Anniversary. Okay. Um, so, Patty, how did you go about reporting this story? Um, so, at first, I just looked in our archives and, you know, looked at, well, who did we talk to on that, you know, landmark day and around that landmark day uh, that might be interesting to talk to. Um, and so, I, I found this couple uh, we interviewed who, they were the first couple to fill out an application. Um, and they married a few days later. And so, they're one of my couples. And then the other two couples um, I was introduced to through, um, I put a story in the paper and online and on Facebook, uh, asking people to submit their um, wedding and engagement photos and to tell me, you know, a little bit about themselves. And so I just kind of, you know, combed through all the emails I got and all the photos I got and um, selected a couple of couples that sounded really interesting. So I, I sit next to you in the Colombians newsroom, and I heard a little bit of this when you were reporting it, but what kind of reaction did you get when you put that on Facebook, asking for people to submit memories or photos of, uh, of, of, of same-sex marriage? Um, so we got a lot of positive feedback, but we also got a little bit of negative feedback. Um, the, so the story was posted on our website early in the morning, you know, at like 6 a.m. is kind of when it automatically went on our website. And people went on there and 
put some vile comments on on the the story that were then taken off and we shut down the comment section um but i just thought that was interesting and sort of reflective of the fact that it's only been five years and a lot of people still don't approve <laughs> so for the in the course of reporting the story you also collected a lot of statistics on looking at same-sex marriage right mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what you found sure so kind of one of the basic stats I wanted to get was just how many marriages have occurred in Clark County. Um, and there's been a, a couple thousand. Uh, I don't have the 2017 numbers. Those aren't available yet from the Department of Health. Um, but there have been a, a couple thousand between 2012 and 2016. And the most were in 2013. So that was the first full year that um, same-sex marriage was legalized or uh, legal. And so if it, if it weren't for same-sex marriage being legalized, that year the number of new marriage licenses issued in 2013 would have been at its lowest point in the last two decades, um, which I thought was interesting. I went back and looked at how many marriage licenses were, um, people got every year since 1991, and it's gone pretty much down since then, and 2013 would have been the lowest point if it wasn't for gay marriage. Uh, so has that leveled out then, the number of same-sex marriages, or is it still on an incline? Uh, it's definitely leveled out. Um, last year in 2016, there were 82 marriages. So as opposed to there were 1,431 in 2013. So there was a rush of people who, you know, had been wanting to get married for a while and, and got married then, and of course, uh, in 2013, it wasn't yet legal nationwide, so you have to think, well, that's some of those people are coming from Portland because these are marriages that occurred in Clark County, but they aren't necessarily all Clark County residents. So in the course of reporting this story, you talked to some same-sex couples. Um, how are their marriages doing? How, what, what are their marriages like? Well, the marriages are good and just really normal. They said the word boring a lot when I was interviewing them. I think all of them described their marriages as boring and described themselves as old married people, uh, which I thought was funny. Uh, I interviewed people who are at different ages, so kind of at different parts in their life. Um, so the first couple uh, who will be in the Sunday paper, they are both now retired, so they're just kind of living retired life um, with their they have a black lab named Lucky and just kind of you know hanging out with him and hanging out around here and enjoying retired life um, and then the other two couples I interviewed um, are more uh, younger in their 30s and 40s and they have children. So Patty when you were reporting this story was there anything that surprised you? I think one of the most surprising things um, was with my third couple um, I talked with a couple who they have a daughter who it's two women so they had a daughter through um, a donor so one of the women carried the daughter um, and just kind of they talked about sort of the struggle with that with uh, with doctors and other medical providers recognizing the other mom who you know doesn't have a biological tie to the daughter and just sort of their ongoing struggle with that they still deal with that with doctors being you know asking, you know, who, who are you, you know, how are, can you prove that you're her mom and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then also since their daughter's eight and she goes to school, 
Um, they talked a lot about how they've navigated school life and approaching parents and being very upfront. They're, they're a same-sex family um, and that she, their daughter has two moms and just being upfront about that because they've run into issues when people have been surprised by the fact that there are two moms and, you know, Savannah, maybe she's been hanging out with someone and um, and then their parents learn that she has two moms and she's no longer allowed to hang out with that kid. So I thought that was interesting and, and sad. Patty, thanks for coming on the podcast and your three-day series about same-sex marriage in Washington in Clark County five years later begins this Sunday. All right, everybody. Uh, now we are going to talk about everybody in Southwest Washington's favorite subject, tolls. Um, if I'm sure many of you are aware, and maybe some of you aren't, but uh, Oregon right now is considering putting tolls at the state line on I-5 and 205, and then uh, putting tolls down on to where the two roads meet below Portland. And that has been a pretty controversial topic uh, locally. There's a lot of people that really, really don't like the idea of having to pay to get into Oregon. But Oregon doesn't really have a plan yet. And so we thought we would bring on a guy who knows tolling and the whole issue of transportation in general very well, uh, Mark Hollenbeck. He's a professor up at the University of Washington and the director of the Washington State Transportation Center that is run out of the university. So first, Mark, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate your time in what has no doubt been a very busy week for you. Well, happy to help. So, um, you know, I... When you and I spoke before, um, if I remember right, you had said that, you know, you weren't really uh, up on what Oregon is up to. Is that right? Uh, I do not know the details, but based on your introduction, I don't think Oregon knows the details yet. So, <laughs> so um, you know, what I have heard off the record from more than one person that is sort of in the loop with what Oregon wants to do is it sounds like at least at this point, they're thinking they're just going to photocopy uh Washington's playbook about how um, tolls have been set up in and around Puget Sound. So I want to see if you can talk to us about uh, tolls up there. If we can talk about like what different kind of tolling infrastructure there is, how well it works, uh, who it hurts, and you know, sort of the ins and outs of that. So um, if we can, can you just kind of give me a run through of the uh, what kind of tolling, what kind of tolling is going on is set up um, around Puget Sound? So, so first off, there's no one thing, and you don't have an hour to talk about different tolling strategies. So we have, at least right off the top of my head, four very different tolling uh, regimes or, or uh, toll systems, and we're likely to have two more in the not-that-distant future. And they all operate differently and, and for different reasons. The first toll uh, project we have is the Tacoma Narrows, the new Tacoma Narrows Bridge. It's a static toll. You drive through and you pay a particular amount. You pay in one direction, not the other. They figure they'll catch you one way or the other. Um, so you always pay the same rate no matter what time of day. It's very traditional. And it, the price goes up slowly over time to make sure they can pay off the cost of the bridge. Um, it works really great when you're going to build or replace a bridge like the, the bridges over the Columbia River. The second tolling system we have is somewhat similar, um, but slightly different. 
So the 520 floating bridge from the east side of Lake Washington into near downtown Seattle uh, was old and needed to be replaced. So they built a new bridge, um, and that is paid for with what's called static time of day pricing. So if you drive, so the price is different at, during the morning and afternoon rush hours than it is during the middle of the day than it is during early in the morning or late at night, or it's free very, very late at night, so from midnight until about 5 o'clock in the morning. So the goal of that project is to generate uh, money to pay for the bridge, but it is also designed to, to change the demand for the curve so that people who can change the time of day they travel they will shift to less congested time of the day when it is cheaper to travel. The difference between 520 and the Tacoma Narrows, they're both bridges, they're both major infrastructure expensive, the toll is designed to pay. With the Tacoma Narrows, there's no good alternative. So everybody who really wants to go across from Tacoma to Gig Harbor, they all pay the same amount. They're, they're gonna, you're going to go, you're going to pay that, that, that amount of money. So when you say alternative, you mean there's no, no long way around, no alternate route? There, there, there is a long way around, but it, you're going to add like four hours to your trip. For 520, that's not the case. For 520, there are rational alternatives. So when I increase the price in the peak period, some people choose to travel at 11 o'clock in the morning or at 4.50 in the morning to avoid or lower their tolls. Other people drive three and a half miles south on Interstate 405 or Interstate 5 to the I-90 floating bridge, which is still free. So if you don't have the money to pay the $4 and something peak period toll, you can take an extra amount of time to drive around. So for you, it could be the I-5 bridge versus the 205 bridge. It, that Your distances are a little farther than ours, but if I-5 was told, a whole bunch of people who are headed from Clark County, Washington to Springfield, right? the difference between I-5 and I-205 isn't so bad, and if it was going to cost you five bucks to cross on, on I-5 and nothing to cross on 205, an awful lot of people would get off of I-5 and go over to 205. Okay, now if I-5 was really congested and 205 was really uncongested, that would be a good traffic management thing. Not only would I help pay for the new I-5 bridge, but I would balance my traffic flows more effectively. The third one was the original dynamic pricing. It's called a hot lane, high occupancy toll. So an HOV, Uh, any carpool or bus, in our definitions, gets to use the lane for free, but the 167 hot lane was not fully used. There was extra space in the hot lane. And so what we said was, if you wish to pay to use the hot lane, we will let you buy into that hot lane. All you have to do is have an electronic transponder that pays the toll automatically, And you can hop in that lane whenever you want to and drive down the lane. But we're going to charge you a fee. Now, the fee, unlike 520, I always know when at 8 o'clock in the morning it's going to be $4, right? 
right? It's always $4. It may change once a year or whatever, but when it changes, I will still know the new price is $4.10, and it will always be $4.10 at least for the next six months. In a dynamic pricing situation, that price changes every minute or two minutes or five minutes depending on the control algorithm. And the control algorithm is designed to keep that dynamically priced lane congestion-free or congestion-limited. So the goal is to keep that lane operating at least at 45 miles an hour. So if it starts to get congested, you jack up the price to discourage other vehicles from getting in. This allows the buses to be on time. It allows the carpools to be on time. So by keeping the lane moving, I actually serve more vehicles than if I let the lane break down. So the dynamic price here is generate some money, but not a whole lot, but it utilizes that capacity to its maximum extent, and it keeps the buses on time. So money, on the 167 example, is uh, mostly used as a demand management function. It's not designed to make a lot of money because it doesn't make a lot of money. It makes, you know, 10, 15 million a year, which is great, wonderful, but come on, we're, you, just, you can't build urban freeways at that cost. All right, so now you get to the fourth example that we have up here, which is the I-405 express lane. So in I-405 express lanes, we wanted, we have a different problem than we had on 167. In the I-405 HOV lane, there was one HOV lane, it was totally congested, way too many carpools, way, way too many carpools. And, and therefore, the HOV lane breaks down as frequently as badly or close to as badly as the general purpose lanes and the buses are all stuck in congestion. So in this case, we wanted to do two things. One, we wanted to expand the roadway as best we could, but we didn't have a whole lot of money to do that with. And we wanted to make sure that the buses win, uh, and we're willing because there are already too many vehicles. There's no free space to sell. We threw out the two-person carpools. We said, you guys have to rejoin the general purpose lanes. Okay? So three-person carpools are, are eligible to be free, during the rush hour. In addition, because we had some money and there's so much growth, we added an extra lane. So now we have this, now we are caring about two things. Now we want to help pay for that lane, which is expensive, so we want to make money. We didn't have enough money to build the whole 13, I guess it's 17 miles worth of roadway at two lanes. So the southern half is two lanes of HOT, the northern half remains at one lane of HOT. So, and now we price it. So now we operate it, and one of the keys, because we have twice as much capacity in the southern half is, can we actually generate enough money to help pay for this road? Remember, you can drive for free, but it's more likely to be congested, or you can hop into the HOT lane and pay the dynamic price, whatever that may be. Right? And it, the low is, again, 50 cents, I think. The high in both cases is $10. So 405 has the operational goals of 167, but it also has as a major goal how much money can we make to pay for these lanes? 
Because if we can pay for these lanes, or the vast majority of these lanes, from people volunteering to pay, because they can always drive in the free lane next to it, then we could pay to widen the roads. So what they found is that the southern half of this works reasonably well. Engineering design said enough people would get off at the major freeway interchange where the two lanes of HOT, so it was two lanes of HOT and three lanes of general purpose. At this major freeway, they dropped two lanes. They drop one general purpose lane, they drop one HOT lane. So it goes from five, three and two, to three, two and one. What they found was that, that the number of vehicles who got off weren't nearly as many as they expected. So they had way too much traffic coming from five lanes going to three. In addition, an awful lot of the people willing to pay in the southern half wanted to go all the way to the very end at the north. So what that resulted in is a pricing algorithm that jumped up to $10 really quickly because they were trying to manage the northern half of this facility, right, where capacity became an issue. So they were still saving an awful lot of time, but at a very high cost rate, and that turned out to be a problem. So part of that is a design issue, but again, part of it is a very different operating um, philosophy where they're more interested in money in the 405 and less interested in operations, except they still need it to operate well or there's no incentive to pay. Now you come back to Oregon and you have to say, okay, what is it that you're trying to achieve in how you do your tolling? And I'm going to raise one other kind of facility that doesn't exist in Seattle, in Washington, and that is what was proposed by North Carolina. North Carolina proposed that they put a toll at the northern state boundary and at the southern state boundary to fund the reconstruction of their interstates. The idea being that non-North Carolinians would pay for the vast majority of North Carolina's infrastructure cost. Did that project go forward? It got thrown out <laughs> in the courts. Okay. Wait, what did the court, what was the court's reasoning? Uh, the court's reasoning, it was unfair taxation. From, for, to have a resident of one state uh, pay for infrastructure in another state? So it's not that, it's that essentially you're shifting the cost burden away. So if everybody pays, it's fine. If you're charging other people for your goods, it's not fine. So if I charge everybody who crosses the bridge the money for the bridge, life is fine. And if that's unbalanced and if there are a lot of Washingtonians and not so many Oregonians, tough cookies. It's the bridge, and if you're using the bridge, you're using the bridge. But if you put the boundaries at the extremes and no one in the middle has to participate, that creates some uh, constitutional issues. And I'm not sure how legal it is and how much it's US DOT saying that's not a, a bad, that's not a good precedence that we're gonna let happen. But the world of taxation, matter of fact, you could look at it right now in what some of the congressional things are. The world of taxation is always to get someone else to pay for the stuff you want, right? That's what a successful politician does. Somebody else pays for your constituent stuff. In tolling, that 
turns out to be a really short-term approach. What you really want is for people to pay for the things they're using. If they value it, they should pay for it to use it. If they don't value it enough to help pay for it, they shouldn't be using it, right? That's kind of, that's great economics. It might not be good politics, but it's good economics. So tolls are good when the toll is being used to the benefit of the person paying it. Tolls tend to be bad when the people paying it are not gaining benefits from it, but you're taking that money to go spend elsewhere. So one of the criticisms of Oregon's plan to put tolls on I-5 and I-205 is that some of this money is going to be used for infrastructure improvements elsewhere in Oregon. Is that is that what you're talking about? Would that be an inappropriate use of a toll? Um, that's certainly a controversial use. Now, again, whether it's legal or not is separate from whether it's good politics, which is separate from how people done it. So if you look at the state of Indiana, the state of Indiana sold their existing toll road, which is on the north going east-west, and they took the vast majority of the money and spent it in the south. Now, as a state, they're allowed to do that. The only people paying to use that facility are the people on the facility, and the state owned the toll road. So they sold the toll road to a private operator. They took the money and they spent it in the south. Now, that got them a whole lot of votes from the South, but it sure pissed off the people in the North. Much of the East Coast uses the tolls to fund infrastructure off of the toll facility itself, right? But it, it creates a lot of animosity in that process. Now, that also then comes from what's in the facility. So if I were to toll um, the the I-5 bridge, but use it to provide transit service as an alternative over the I-5 bridge, so you wouldn't have to pay that. Is that a fair thing or not? That's a great philosophical question. One, it gives you a way to avoid paying the toll. That's a good thing. Two, the people who are paying the toll are subsidizing your transit. Is that good or bad? Well, if you're paying the toll, you're probably not very happy. On the other hand, if you get rid of 45 cars to get into that bus and you have less congestion, you're gaining benefit. So this is a wonderfully tough question. It's one of the reasons we like the hot lane concept where you have a choice, you have a value proposition. You can travel for free, but you are likely to be in congestion during peak use times or you can help fund the expansion of the transportation system by paying for better service. When they first started rolling out tolls on the roads in uh, your guys' area, I imagine the public probably wasn't too thrilled about it. Um, my question is, one, am I correct with that assumption? And two, has that attitude continued or have people started to warm up to this idea? Um, well, the, the responses have been very different depending on the facility. So in the Tacoma Narrows, that was the first, uh, that was what got us back into tolling. There was an awful lot of public pushback from the people who routinely crossed the bridge. The problem was they were, that was the only way they were going to get a bridge, and people, the, that group was small enough that they were kind of overwhelmed. The 520 bridge, we spent, oh, 20 years trying to figure out how to replace the old 520 bridge. We knew it was in trouble. It was. We knew that it was 
absurdly congested, much like I-5 is in the Portland area, right? And, and could never get the political will to figure out how we would pay for it. We then got lucky, I will use the term very cautiously, in that a tugboat operator fell asleep at four o'clock in the morning while pulling a very heavy barge and, and didn't quite make the right turn to head out to Puget Sound from Lake Washington. And by not quite making the turn, they clipped the northernmost pier on the high rise on the western end of the bridge and punched a giant hole in it. That giant hole was on television every day for two months because the four-lane bridge was down to three while they frantically tried to rebuild the piling underneath the freeway bridge. The lucky part was also they had a giant hole on, on this bridge shown on television every night because of the congestion of the four lanes going to three, right? So wonderful, at which point the political wills shifted to, okay, it's obvious that we have to repair this bridge. It's obvious that we have to bite the bullet. Here we go, this is what we're gonna do. And oh, by the way, USDOT had a program to show how congestion pricing would work. We'll take their, I don't know what the number was, $180 million to do this demonstration. That's nothing compared to the cost of this bridge, which is two to four billion. Let's do it, okay? And so that changed, that disaster changed the political will. 167, hey, there was a lane that was underutilized there were no losers in the 167 one, and it was there was a big political debate. But when you have no losers and only winners, because the only thing that could happen would be some people who are in the lane you were operating in now would get out of your way, and they would choose to pay. And what do you care? So your commute, everybody's commute, got better. And the only question was whether did you want to pay for a lot better, or did you want to just get a little better because other people were getting out of your way. For the 405 example, the question was, how are we going to pay this? Well, we have enough money for part of it. We could eventually cover it, but what an opportunity to see, one, to get these advantages for carpools in our qualification, but mostly for transit. And we can see how much a two-lane facility will really generate. And by the way, will that pay for the upper, the northern half, and oh, by the way, it, the, the HOT lanes only are half of the total length of 405. Maybe if we generate enough money, that would jumpstart the expansion of the southern half of 405 because we will have demonstrated that there's enough money coming in from the hot lanes that we can, in fact, do this expansion at no cost to the taxpayer, only to the people who are willing on a day-to-day -day basis to buy better service. Okay, and so that political lift was okay, but some. 405 at this point is still reasonably successful, although it's break-in operational problems and the frequency of the $10 toll, which is bad visibility, has created considerable more pushback on any of the three previous projects. So if you're washed out, I think you still consider it a success, despite the very significant teething pain. But we don't have the resources to build new facilities in urban areas without tolls. Uh, Eastern Washington wants nothing to do with paying for Western Washington uh, freeway expansion. That's a non-starter on the state level. 
and in the, within the urban area, there's uh, no no appetite whatsoever for general taxation to widen roads. So if they're going to widen roads, it's going to have to be in some form of user fee. And the question is how that will go. So that kind of issue of fairness and perception has been a talking point of Representative Jamie Herr Butler's lately. You know, she just seems to be talking about tolls a lot. Um, so I'm curious, you know, if you think that her take on this on trying to prevent Oregon from, ta- you know, putting the tolls on is showboating, or do you think there's some validity to the points that she's making? Well, that, that definitely goes back to the design of the toll system that they put in place, right? If, mm-hmm. if you put in, a, in place a toll system that is the middle of the Columbia River bridges and the south of the I-5-205 interchange, there's very definitely, un, and then spend that money across the state of Oregon, there's definitely some unfair taxation involved in that, right? That's not a user fee. That's a tax. If, on the other hand, you put tolls on the I-5 bridge and you replace the I-5 bridge, and whether that's a bridge with new transit or a bridge without new transit, uh, again, that's a legitimate argument to have. But one, again, you can, if you want to add capacity, you're going to want to add it as transit. If you're going to want to add capacity, you have to phrase the question differently than toll or no toll. Toll or no toll is, is the question of do you want the bridge replaced or not replaced? Mm-hmm. If you're going to change that question and say, do you want this three lane bridge replaced with a four lane bridge all the way to Portland? And we're going to pay for it with tolls because that's the only way we can pay for it. There's no general tax that will pay for it. So if you want this replaced, so, so here I'm going to phrase my questions the way the real questions need to be asked. You can replace the I-5 bridge with the exact same structure, but a new one that won't fall down in 10 years. And that will cost you three bucks each way. That's choice one. The second choice is you cannot pay a toll until the bridge falls down and then tough cookies, okay? That's mm-hmm. choice two. The third choice is I'm gonna replace that, th- that three lanes in each direction road with a bridge with a four lane bridge or a five lane bridge and I'll take those four or five lanes all the way into Portland. Now that cost is, and we're, we're gonna pay with a toll. So instead of the $3 tolls, that is so much more expensive of a, of a project, it's gonna be an $8 toll. So your choices are, do you want a bridge that falls down in 10 years? Do you want a $3 toll with no change in capacity? Or do you want a $8 toll with an increase in capacity? And that's the discussion, because the other discussion of, hey, Oregon should have a sales tax increase so that I and Clark County can drive to Portland, that's a non-starter. That's not an option because they've already said, no, we're not going to do that. So, okay, that's cool. Washington can't ensure that Portland is going to pay for roads that Washington people are using any more than you can put a toll on crossing the bridge and spend it in Bend. What they're talking about with that taxing area, putting tolls somewhere between uh, the state line and then south of Oregon, it sounds like that money would actually go towards, or is likely going to go towards, uh, funding a, a highway widening project in the Rose Quarter of Portland. So, if again, if 
if you um, if you were to put six toll gates between um, I five between the Columbia River Bridge and the 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 I five two hundred five interchange, right on both of those freeways. So people who get on and off at any section of that help pay for that. Life is sweet. Go for it. Or if you want to put those toll gates around the rose garden, where they're going to do that, that widening, go for it, right? Then everybody who's using that section of the freeway pays for it. That's great user fee, right? No problem whatsoever. What, where the problem comes from is, is if you charge the Columbia River Bridge and you spend it in the rose garden or you spend it in Bend or you spend it in the Dalles, that's the problem, right? So, so the tolling works really well as a user fee. The people who need to use the facility pay for the cost of building, maintaining, replacing the facility. That's a good thing from an economics perspective. What works really badly and is a really bad form of taxation is when people who aren't using the facility that I'm going to improve and repair have to pay for the improvement and repair of that, right? That's, that's, it's bad economics because the price and, and uh, delivery aren't connected. You have a choice to pay for and use the service or not pay for and don't use the service. That's how economics work. And where you separate price and use, that's when bad things happen. So I'm curious, why do you think the discussion is stuck on tolls versus no tolls instead of bridge versus no bridge? We don't want to admit that the bridge is going to fall down. It, it's one of those things that will happen at some point in the future, and I can just push it off. Because realistically, that bridge is going to last, I, again, I don't know the numbers, but 10 years, 15 years, right? And, and if we have a 6.5 earthquake in the next five years, nothing happens. But if we have the 6.5 earthquake at year nine, when the bridge is weak, it's going to fall down. But I can ignore that. That's a future infrastructure problem that I don't have to deal with. And more importantly, as a politician, I don't want to tell you you have to pay for these things. Now, this is not an Oregon problem. I mean, again, Washington, we couldn't deal with the 520 bridge for literally more than 20 years, even though it was way past its need for being replaced. The relationship of, of Portland and Clark County, people who are um, less interested in public taxation are far more likely to live in Clark County than they are to live in Portland, right? So Clark County, as a, as a general political will, is much more interested in um, lower taxes, right, and less government, whatever, which actually should make them interested in tolls because tolls should be a user fee. But... Uh, but those same people often don't want to pay tolls because there's a belief that magically somehow this stuff gets built. And, and there, there definitely need to be constraints because, again, you'll see on the East Coast, the question is, well, we already have this toll in place. We're just going to jack the toll up another quarter, and that's going to solve this other financial system. I mean, it's Indiana. Well, look, we got $3 billion for free because we sold this toll system to this wonderful, I think it was a Spanish firm, and look at all of these projects we get to build in southern Indiana. And we'll build a few in northern Indiana too, but look, it's $3 billion. It's free money, right? And then and these 
People driving across the state will pay for it. It's a great political win, short-sighted, but it's a great political win. Well, listen, we could talk about this all day, but I think we better wrap it up. But hey, thank you for taking nearly 45 minutes out of your day to talk with us about this. I really appreciate it. No, no problem. Uh, uh, best of luck with you. Uh, please do it right um, and, and figure out how you're going to do it right. And, and, you know, we could talk a lot more and maybe we will, but that's for another day. Good luck and uh, good luck to you, uh, to everybody in both Clark County and, and in Oregon. I hope you find a good solution that's good for everybody. So now we have Micah Rice, Colombian sports editor, to talk to us about a special section that will be coming out in the December 17th paper, previewing winter sports. Uh, Micah, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us about this uh, special section. What will readers get out of it? Well, if you read it front to back, you will know uh, a little bit and hopefully a lot about every high school basketball team in Clark County. Um, we're going all the way from the smallest classifications up to the big ones. Uh, as uh, a lot of people know high school basketball is a big deal and has been a big deal in Clark County going all the way back to uh, the dominant Prairie Girls teams of the 1990s to uh, last year when we had uh, the Union Boys team make it all the way to the 4A state championship game. We also had uh, the Center Boys team uh, finish fourth in the Class 1A uh, state tournament and uh, there are a lot of teams both on the boys and girls side which have some pretty high aspirations of, uh, of placing really high in the state this year. And so we wanted to do a special section to really sort of set the landscape uh, for what people can expect uh, this season for high school basketball and, and frankly for all the winter sports uh, for high schools in Clark County because uh, uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, and you've done, we've done previous uh, editions like this. Uh, is this one different anyway or? Yeah, and this is the first time we've done a special section for the winter high school sports. Uh, last year we, uh, we started with a high school uh, fall sports special section and that first year it was only on football. Football obviously being the the most popular of all the high school sports in the area. Um, this year we ex expanded on that fall section to include the other fall sports, girls soccer and uh, uh, and some of the others, uh, tennis, uh, you know, swimming and and you know we were really happy with how that turned out and so. As sports editor, I'm always thinking, well, what can we do that's new to you know make an impact? And I figured, well, let's take the same approach into the winter sports season. Uh, do a basketball preview along with the other winter sports like wrestling, gymnastics, boys swimming, girls bowling, and let's uh, let's see how it turns out. And it's been quite a uh, quite an endeavor, especially doing it during the the time of the year when we're also covering uh, the fall sports high school playoffs, uh, but uh, uh, I think it's going to be a really nice product. And how many pages are in it? Right now it's good. It's looking like it's going to be about 45. So pretty extensive. Uh, yeah, we're going to have a, a page for each high school in the area for basketball. Half the page is going to be devoted to the boys team, the other half of the page to the girls team. You'll have a short article uh, explaining kind of the key players and, and 
the focus of each team. We'll also have the schedules and a, a box with uh, you know listing all the uh, the key players, whether they're uh, you know the star or maybe one of the, the the first players off the bench to make an impact. And so uh, it, it's putting a lot of information in uh, in, a, in a very concise way. I hope. It sounds like this this issue will have a a pretty broad and and in depth uh, look at uh, winter sports coming up, and I understand that there's going to be a, a, a cover story in there. Tell us about that. Oh uh, yeah, well, 30 years ago was the first year that the three point shot was introduced into high school basketball. It came in in uh, the 1987-1988 uh, academic year, so that's 30 years of three pointers. And talking to coaches that were around then and coaches that are around now, they can't imagine the game without the three-point shot. It's perhaps one of the most influential rule changes ever to impact high school sports. And the the fact that it, it's the three-pointer is basically, you know, its effect can't really be measured in basketball because it, it has affected so many parts of the game. People can't imagine the, the sport without the three-point shot. So. We talked to players who are some, you know, uh, what we've uh, talked to a, a tandem from Union High School, Zach Resnick and Tyler Combs, who are two of the best three-point shooters in the area and have really sort of made their career in high school around shooting the three-pointers just on what they do to make that shot such a, an impactful part of their game. We also talked to uh, our returning all-region girls player of the year, Brooke Walling, who is six foot three, plays a post, which is near the basket, but also can hit the three-pointer from outside. And just what a challenge that is for defenders trying to limit her game, but also how she has used that to really make herself more marketable to, to college programs out there. So that's really interesting. I had no idea that the three-pointer was not part of the game, had not always been part of the game but at the high school level. What, um, can you tell us just a little bit more about that? What, why did they, what, what brought that into the game and why wasn't it always part of it? Well, it followed suit uh, one year after the college game adopted the rule. Uh, for, for a long time, decades, uh, the college game did not have a three-point shot. It was the NBA, of, of course, that first adopted it, but college seeing that uh, there, there was an opportunity there to maybe bring smaller players uh, into the offense that otherwise wouldn't, you know, would, would be sort of overshadowed by the big men. Uh, the the three-point line was adopted and, and sort of gave that type of player an opportunity to really make an impact in the game. When, uh, when the high school game followed suit shortly thereafter, it had the same effect. It used to be where teams would pass the ball around and, and try to get a, a shot as close to the basket as they possibly could with that being the, the highest percentage shot. Now with the three-pointer and that extra re reward for taking a theoretically higher risk shot, it sort of changed the equation. There's a lot of analytical studies out there that show the two best shots in basketball when you weigh risk versus reward are layups, obviously because it's a high percentage shot, 
and the three-point basket being that even though it isn't such a high percentage shot, that one extra point makes all the difference in, in the world as far as you know the risk versus reward equation. So it, it's changed how offenses are set up. It's changed how defense is played because now you have to have people outside to guard those three-point shots. It used to be where if you had a bunch of big defenders, you just stack them near the basket and say, well, come on, beat us, uh, just just try to beat us. But now uh, it's spread the defense, it's made the game more open, it's, it's made the game quicker, it's made the game uh, less predictable because suddenly a team that's down in the, in the second half can get hot and start hitting a bunch of three-pointers and, and make a rally that might not have been possible without the three-point shot. The Columbian Winter Sports Preview Special section will be in the December 17th paper. Uh, Micah Rice, Columbian Sports Editor, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You can find this podcast just about anywhere you find your podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the face or straight to the Colombians website every fr- every Thursday when we have a show to do. So it's all over the place. Thank you very much for tuning in and I appreciate your time and we will see you later.